This podcast is brought to you by the Creative Industries Development Service in Manchester and Nesta. For more information about The Loop and SIDS, go to www.sids.co.uk forward slash The Loop. Firstly, before we get into this, I'm, I, I'm stepping in the shoes of Tony tonight, who's um, stunning at these kind of things. Um, and what's quite strange as well is that I used to work for Tony, who was my first boss. And um, my first job as a 22-year-old from the university was to work for Fat Records. And um, my first day at work, Tony said to me, um, uh, Darling, darling, uh, can you... Um, uh, we got to Bez. Bez, happy Monday. It's coming later. Uh, Going to talk about his new musical direction. Speak to him down. Have a word with him. And uh, so I spent the afternoon, my first day at work, sitting with Bez. He was explaining to me that his new musical direction was so far out there, man, that not even Stephen Hawkins could find it. <laughs> um, and for the next two years that I worked on, I realised how um, important he is to the city and. Um, I kind of think of him as the Ravens at the Tower of London, you know, he's kind of reading here, so um, we all wish him a very speedy recovery. And hopefully he'll take his rightful place back in here soon, and I'll take my rightful place, which is uh, somewhere at the back. Um, okay, so today uh, we're talking about the intangible, and I have a good experience of this, because yesterday um, I went to see my accountant, because uh, I had to sign my form, which I'm sure some people did for uh, the end of the year, and... I have a creative agency called 423. And 423 has, um, we have Adidas as clients, and we have the Department of Transport and UK Film Council. And I went to pick up my accounts and gave me my profit and loss forms, and yeah, it's fine. And I signed my corporation tax bill, yeah, great, did all that, fine. And then they turned over to my balance sheet. And I looked at my balance sheet, and, um, and my assets were in there. And I won't divulge assets at this stage, of course. Um, but it didn't actually say anything about how brilliantly talented and creative my staff were. It didn't say anything about uh, the relationships that I'd built with some global clients over the last few years. It didn't say anything about the culture that I have in my business, which is very unique to 43. It didn't say anything about the processes that we've developed and developed over the years, which make um, which we, we work very hard on, so we develop and we deliver projects in a certain way. Didn't say anything about my reputation, and definitely didn't say anything about the brand that I developed and had engaged numbers of clients over the last three years. Um, so I came away from that and I thought, well, I know two guys that I'm going to ask if my accountant's wrong, uh, and that's David and, um, and James decided me. Um, so to start, I think what would be really great is if we could, um, I'm going to ask the two guys just to briefly explain the career path that they've taken. Um, I'm going to ask David to come first, because David, as far as I know, it's, it doesn't start in computers, it starts in a, in a van in Marrakesh. <laughs> no, we haven't got anything like that yet. No, but can you just explain the, uh, the career path, please? Right. Well, I'm obviously the oldest person in the room, so I had the longest career path. Uh, and it did start in a van in Marrakesh, but the, then a short, you know, ten years went by. Um, and the beginnings uh, of my career uh, in, in video games, computer games, started in a nightclub in Hollywood, actually, um, where um, towards the middle period of the nightclub, the nightclub had lasted about three or four years, after which it goes from being full of A-list movie stars to being full of people that basically shoot each other at the bar. <laughs> um, and in between, you've got the kind of you know, range of dentists and other people. 
uh, trying to get in. Um, but one, one of the big revenue earners towards the, the last part of the, uh, of the cycle uh, were what then were quite innovative new things, which were video games, where you poured coins into machines that did space invaders and galaxies and this kind of thing. And I was impressed every night, you know, although the club seemed to be half full, the lines to play these machines were, were never, never ending. Um, and so when the club finally um, closed its doors, as they did, um, the sheriffs kind of insistingly phoned out in the game. Uh, I decided that we would look for a, a, a consumer version of this. Of course, somebody had already come up with it called Atari. Um, but that was a in the United States, and I, I came back to the UK and started in 1982 now, um, something called Ocean Software. Um, without any real idea of, of whether or not there was a, the, the, this, this was something that people would like to do. Um, and put adverts in various newspapers and magazines. Um, and through the door came you know, lots, of, lots of people who, who, who said they'd written the game, whatever that meant at the time. Uh, and my business kind of developed from that. We, we developed sort of along the leading edge of, of, the, of the evolution of, a, of an interactive games industry, um, which actually began with us computers, because at that time there were no video game systems at all. The original one was already by the time that I. Um, Towards the end of the 80s, various Japanese companies came up with what were called consoles and started developing interactive products for those as well. Um, by the mid-90s, the amount of capital required was so enormous that the companies that weren't public, or hadn't gone public by that time, were, were being severe constraints, and the companies that weren't global were being crushed out of, out of, out of business. So we did a variety of the usual mergers and acquisitions guns um, and learned all about banks and bankers and, and brokers and that sort of thing, which is a heartening experience. Uh, and then uh, through another couple of, of, of kind of carnations, um, I exited that business, which was by then ironically called Atari. We acquired that brand and those names and uh, uh, by, by the sort of um, uh, the late 1990s. And in 2000, I decided that um, there were two real problems with the video games business. Um, the main one was that you had to make boxes and ship them all over the place to people. And that cost money, and secondly, the boxes didn't always sell. So you ended up with a lot of inventory, um, and you had to have supply problems and all the rest of it. Um, but there seemed to be on the horizon, you know, just for the dot-com bust, a, a, a new kind of way of, of delivering entertainment, cheap and cheap entertainment to people on mobile phones. But didn't act, the technology didn't actually exist at that time, but I thought maybe you know, even a year or two it would. So um, I started a, a mobile phone company, again, in Manchester, called, called iPhone, which uh, we pioneered most of the kind of early ways of looking at delivering data, enough data, to have some form of uh, entertainment, either interactive entertainment or or kind of casual puzzle data that you could use and, and, and hopefully enjoy. Uh, and uh, about a year ago now, because the growth or rather the evolution of this industry was much more rapid than video games, partly because the hardware, the device technology, was growing in a, in a much more exponential way and placed itself, as you probably know, with mobile phones every 18 months is supposed to every five years. And consequently, the, 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 the changes that have been adopted by the business of the industry were you know, in common. 
that time frame. Um, so they decided to go global, do all the um, 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 M&A business, and completed that sort of last year. And the company, which, which I, I know, uh, I'm only the European chairman, which is called Blue, will hopefully um, join um, join the public markets in America in a couple of months' time. That's a potted history of pioneering uh, the interaction of today. Great, thank you. And um, if you want to know about Marrakesh, I'll tell you because I know so it's there. Really. And Jane, can I just ask you just a quick background? Of, uh, uh, yes, maybe nice, maybe. nice. This is uh, high five in Zealand. Um, I studied in the south of Marrakesh. Um, I went to University of Manchester uh, a long, long time ago. And uh, when I left university after I graduated, I decided that I didn't want to do anything at all apart from have fun and travel and do what I wanted to do. And um, so that's what I did. I sort of set off on my travels with my little suitcase at the time, suitcase, and not very much money. And I sort of worked my way around Europe, the Far East and South America, and then fell in love with a man who was living in uh, America as an American and decided we ended up living in Seattle. So I spent sort of five years wandering about and enjoying myself and thinking, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, fell in love, went to live in Seattle, and then that's when I decided, got a proper job. And um, that's within advertising. Uh, a company called Colon Weather Advertising, who are now owned by um, WPP. And I started at the bottom, sort of the equivalent of the mailroom, something traffic, traffic manager. Basically, we would have to, I had to organise everybody's work and the, when, the, when the deadlines were and what the work was going to go through the studio and who was doing what and when the big presentations were and everything else. And um, so I did that. I started at the bottom and I worked my, my way up there whilst I was there. Um, so I ended up being running a Boeing commercial airplanes account. So that was, that was my grounding, really. When I decided to come back to live in the UK, um, I heard about this thing called design and branding and all that kind of thing. I thought, well, I think I'll give that a go because uh, I've sort of been doing advertising and do something different. And so I came back to work in London and uh, went to work at Michael Peters, who I don't know people here would know who that is really, but he was a big guru at the time and um, very, had a very, very successful company and worked there for a while. And then I, then I sort of got involved in investor relations and sort of corporate communications of businesses. Um, I went to work at a company called Porfly um, and ended up then, and that was all about investor communications, so talking to shareholders. Uh, analysts and fund managers about why they should buy or invest in, a per in that particular business's stock um, as opposed to anybody else's. Um, ended up working for one of the clients, Hanson, which is uh, Hanson PLC, Lord Hanson and Lord White. Um, I went back to work in New Jersey for a bit for them and then decided that I wanted to come back to Yorkshire and uh, do something else. And I knew Jonathan Sands, who uh, is the chairman of Elmwood, Anyway, and I was went out for lunch with him one day and asked, he said, what are you going to do next, Jane? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I might open a bed and breakfast or um, I might decide to go work for a client or I might run my own business. Or he said, well, why don't you just come and work for me then? And I go, all right. So I went to work at Elmwood in Yorkshire and that was in 1999. And um, became the MD in, in 2000. Um, and that was when we just had one office. That We just had one office in Guiseley uh, and that was it. 
and then um, we grew quite quickly. Um, for no, we didn't have highfalutin ambitions to be, you know, the biggest and the best and all the rest of it. We just sort of happened organically. We haven't acquired businesses. We haven't done the big M&A thing that you that you that you've gone through. Um, we um, decided that we wanted to open a, an office in London simply because we had some clients who were in the south and they needed comfort and reassurance that we loved them and uh, we did and we said well, we love you so much that we're going to come and move in next to you and that's what we did um, and and that went, that went really well for us and because then you move into a different geographical location you get to know the people around there as well and then you, you, you get yourself networked and you get yourself on the circuit and you know you win some more clients there and, and that's what happened to us and we when we launched our London office, we launched it on the back of it's not another, yet another design agency, a branding design agency opening up because there are a lot of them down in London. A lot of people do, doing similar things. Um, we had to differentiate, differentiate ourselves from other design companies, and that's when we launched our um, sort of brand consultancy, strategic consultancy business on the back of something that we call Step Change, which is all about, it's a workshop tool, it's based on uh, Seven Hat Thinking by De Bono and bit of Synetics thrown in. Um, so we launched ourselves down in London as a strategic brand consultancy as opposed to a design agency, which had always been in Leeds. So that's how we differentiated ourselves and that went really, really, really well. Um, and on the back of that, we got some clients in Edinburgh for some reason. Um, and so we said, oh, we need to go and tell the clients in, in, in Edinburgh that we love them as well and reassure them that we're there for them. And did the same thing there. Um, and then the last thing that we worked in, the last office we was in Melbourne. And that, that came off the back of the next client of ours from Asda, um, who found himself running Curls Myers, the MD, which is the biggest retailer in Australia. And he rang us up one day and he said, I've got this job, there's a bit of an issue with, with the grocery um, chain, uh, can you come down and look at the business? And we said, well, yeah, we will. Went down there, looked at it and said, you've got a big own brand opportunity here. And our own brand is sort of 15 years behind everywhere else. It's sort of behind the UK and certainly behind American own brand. Um, and we got the job and a month later and then we decided that right, we needed to have an office there. Um, and that's that really. Um, and I've been the MD of the Elmwood of Elmwood uh, as a as a group um, for five years, and then the last couple of years I've been Elmwood at Leeds because we grew so big, so so quickly. We needed an MD in each of the offices to make sure everything was running to boom. Um, and then lastly, um, just very recently, I've. Uh, I'm still working with Elmwood, but as a consultant, and I've started my own business. So I've, I've always sort of reinvented myself through through periods of my life, uh, but it's always been on a theme around um, creativity and uh, people and experience. And so, is that enough for positivity? I'm, 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 I'm delighted. Um, I want to I, I want to push David in a second about some of the brands that he has worked with and franchised into and migrated from entertainment into um, into mobile games or into gaming. But first, I, I want to go back. I'm sorry if this is people know about this stuff, but putting Jane's brand head on, um, what makes a good brand, Jane? Um, a brand has to have two uh, ingredients, base ingredients, and that's 
an emotional side, so how does a brand interacting with a brand make you feel? What does it say about you when you buy it or you eat it or you, you, know, you purchase the services of that company? Um, and the other side of that is a real balance, it's yin-yang, it has to, it's a practical side, the nuts and bolts, you know, will that bank account work? Will I get great service from that bank? Will that biscuit be chocolatey and sweet and crispy every time I eat it? Um, so it's on the two sides. The hard side, it has to work, it has to be practical, you have to be consistent about delivery. But also, the, and the other side, which is where a lot of, well, our work comes in, branding consultancies, is, okay, what is it about that brand of chocolate biscuit that differentiates that chocolate biscuit from everybody else's chocolate biscuit? So it's giving somebody a reason to buy that, that chocolate biscuit as opposed to anybody else's. And that's and that's what it's all that, that's what it is. And there are various ingredients to a to a brand from sort of the Elmwood way of looking at it. And again, I think other branding and design companies look at things slightly differently. But the basic theme is always the same, which is you know you have to know what you stand for. You have to have something that you're you want to be famous for, um, and you have to be very clear about what that is. And you have to be absolutely um, committed to that, so that. Um, you never deviate from that. You have to be very consistent about. We are famous for, for example, a Mercedes brand. That's about Teutonic German engineering and simplicity. Um, whereas, um, if you think about that word simplicity, that is all about Mercedes. If you think about Innocent, the brand that the fruit brand. They're also about simplicity, but their version of simplicity is all about organic freshness and um, well-being. It's a completely different interpretation of simplicity. But they are absolutely clear about what they mean by that and what they're selling. And just in the same way that Mercedes are very clear about what they're selling as well. So, so being clear about what your USP is, I'm sure everybody's heard of what a USP is, that's it. You know, what do we want to be famous for? And we have to make sure that everything that we do in this business gives us that, that reinforces that. And then there are other things like personality, or, you know, what kind of clothes would this brand wear if it was a human being, and what kind of things do we value, the ways we do things around here. So, and, and that, that's, that's what Elmwood does. We work with businesses to create their, what they call positioning, you know, what they stand for in a market and why anybody would choose that above everybody else. And that's where you can make your money, because that's what you can charge a premium for. That kind of, of branding work is quite intangible. It is intangible by its nature. Yeah. And, and how do you prove to clients that? How do you make it tangible for them? How do you say well, well this works? Or how do? There's any mechanisms you've got to say? Yeah. To, um, to, to basically. Value it. You have to be very practical about these things as well in business. You know, commercially, and we live in a commercial world, so you need to be able to be prove that what you, the brand that you have created. Um, actually sells. So sales help, you know, sales going in the right direction help. Um, and we, as a, as, a, as a business at Elmwood, um, we, we want to be famous for being creative and effective. So what we do actually does work. Um, and so one of, the, one of the proofs that we give to our clients is say, you choose us as a brand, Elmwood as a brand, as opposed to anybody else, then we, you know, you look at our track record and we make money with our clients, you know, our positionings, our creative work, our interpretation of a brand positioning actually sells more orange juice or it sells more waste disposal services or it sells more bank accounts or it sells, um, you know, I don't know, uh, more frozen chips. 
for example. Um, so we, we, we spend a lot of time and energy in proving to clients that what we do is actually do actually work. And one of the one of the things that we do at Elmwood, because we, we, we want to be famous for creativity and effectiveness, is that we enter the, the Design Effectiveness Award run by the Design Business Association. Which are very hard things to win, you know, to win a Grand Prix there, you've got to prove that it's fantastically creative and fantastically inventive, and actually it sells, and you have to prove that what you did made those sales increase, and we've won several of those, I think we've won more than several, we've double figures now, and so that's a proof that brand, a brand would work. Um, so does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. It's intangible, you have to sell, you have to sell and make money. And David, Ocean was one of the first logos I ever got embedded in my head because I used to, and when it would take ages to load, <laughs> I used to just sit and look at it. You know, it was great. It was absolutely great. Um, so we, we, when you start, this is because it's kind of pre—it's kind of pre-branding rhetoric, isn't it? When you started Ocean, isn't yeah. it? So I mean, was was this a conscious decision that you were developing a brand? And Ocean was a brand that you were developing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the name was chosen because it, it had no bad connotations, I think, anywhere. And it meant the same in most languages. At that time, my horizon was Europe, so I didn't think of outside Europe. But the word was spelled similarly and sounded and meant the same thing in most European languages. And that was, that was the primary reason. And also, it had a kind of aspirational, global sort of appeal. Whereas, you know, digital games or whatever else you could have called Slightly so, we, we, we had vaunting ambition, even, though, even out of the bedroom. <laughs> and yeah, and the brand and the way we stuck the letters together, which, which John Woods, my partner, and I did, you know, with a with Lego, with, not the Lego set, with a series of letters that showed about. Letter set. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was for the same reason. I wanted something that looked so you could go like that yeah. inside of a, you know, a cup, a cow or a, sure. you know, a box or whatever, well, with, a with, brand, with a branding yeah. on it, and it sets up with a branding yeah. on it. Yeah, you've just put all design agencies in Manchester out of business, right? <laughs> um, but what you did also, and what you kind of were famous for at Ocean, I think, is is going and franchising brands, wasn't it? It's going into entertainment, I mean, Rambo, for example, and things yeah. like that. You go to entertainment companies yeah. and franchising. You have mixed opinions about the, uh, about the creative legitimacy of doing that. In a sense, uh, transporting uh, franchises from other media into a new media is, is one of the ways of, of establishing a, a cognizance uh, in, in the mind of the public. And providing that the, 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 the entertainment and the content that you, that you deliver uh, makes, is appealing, is compelling, then, then that, that franchising process works, that branding, sub branding process works. And in fact, I think in video games for a long time, the games themselves are the brands. Uh, the, the names of the companies were were less important, and even you know even as what it is ten years ago, I think somebody did a, an analysis of, of the impact of the of the brands of video gaming companies, and they had very little impact on the consumer's uh, decision to, 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 to buy or not buy a particular product. It was mostly to do with the title and what that title evokes in, in terms of in terms of the. In terms of either a previous carnation of it or its association with some other part of the line. When you were acquired by Infogram, was it a merger with Infogram? Yeah, a merger with Infogram. Yeah. Merger with Infogram. But Ocean was lost then in terms of as a brand identity. Yes, actually that wasn't my decision, but uh, uh, there was a 
there was a, a debate for about six months as to which brand we should adopt. And uh, I think in retrospect, we adopted the one brand. Yeah. Uh, at the time, uh, we were kind of, because Infogram were at that time a public company, which is one of the reasons we, we did the merging, because we had access to public capital, massive amounts of French public capital. Um, we kind of went along with the idea that changing the, changing the name of the company and the brand might have disrupted the, 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 the kind of underlying bedrock of French financial support, which, which enabled them to get to where they were. Right. I think it probably in retrospect was the wrong decision for them to take. Just going back to the way that you franchised, how did you make an assessment? Because that's the intangible, isn't it? If I go and it's Rambo, and I go and get Rambo, and I make the game, and I migrate it into games. That's uh, and if that's you make putting a value on that brand name. How how did we make those decisions? I think the way we used we did it when we started um, franchising movies and media properties in general, they were basically done on a gut basis. Uh, a lot of the, the, the movies we franchised uh, or, or licensed were done in the principal photography, so the, the film hadn't yet come out, and it's a bet basically. Yes. And you're betting, A, that the developers and the, and the graphic artists can make something really appealing, and, and B, that the, the, the media, the principal media, the film, in, the film, would itself be successful. Because one of the ironies of, of transporting franchises is if they don't work in their principal media, they absolutely don't work in any ancillary one. Um, and that often, you know, was a, was a, was a problem. Sure. We once did a Bruce Willis film, I forget what the name of it was. And the game was fantastic, and the film was an absolute dog. <laughs> and uh, and you know, the rest of the history goes. But a couple of the, a couple of the, made it back on Jurassic Park, but it was still a book. So we licensed the rights to that from from the from Michael Crichton. We forced Spielberg to put his name on the wow. on the director's list, and that was a that was a, that was a good bet you know, because it paid off in, in, in spades for a long time. In terms of then valuing your business. Those deals that you've struck and those franchises that you have are obviously putting value back into Ocean, is that right? And Absolutely, yeah. And how are those, I know well, it, it, figures, it, it, how are they assessed? How does your accountant sit down well, and assess those? It depends on the structure of the license that, that you have, obviously. The more sophisticated licensors, particularly, particularly media companies, are very, uh, are very, are very um, you know, uh, um, specific about the license. Uh, agreements and the scope of licenses and the term of licenses that they are um, that they're issuing. Warner Brothers are probably the worst. Uh, they have a whole department that does nothing. Most of them do have no, nothing but productive license. In fact, one of the, the people who want to tell me that you know, don't ever mess with us because litigation is a profit center in this country. Um, but, 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 in that sense, they look at they look at the ancillary income that they're getting from their properties as an important part of their, their business model. Um, so, so, in some other cases, uh, that's that's not the, the way it works at all. In fact, when we when we licensed originally, I remember one of the early successes we had was a was a, a, a game based on Daley Daley Thompson's uh, success in the Olympics. But of course, when we licensed it, we didn't. We couldn't have known that he would win for the Capricorn. It was a bet, basically. It was a good bet because we got him pretty cheap at, at the time, and for a long period of time. It was a 10-year license, so we were able to carry on selling that product for a long time. 
because 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 you know that he couldn't have known the time that his yeah. agent signed the license, and the money had to go to trust because he was a professional athlete at the time anyway. So he was happy to do that. He earned it forty by the way, but not as much as he would have done if he waited until he won the the gold medal and then the <laughs> Just to, we're talking about intellectual property now. So, Jane, in, in, in your industry and what you do, that's quite hard to develop some kind of value and some intellectual property rights that have value in your business. Is that right? Um, it is hard, but it's not. It's not impossible, and we we do that. Um, I think any any business, you know, from a small to meet any business would need to when, if they decided that they wanted to sell it or they wanted to merge on another, it has to be a value, a, a pound, shillings and pence value put on, you know, goodwill, um, the brains and the creativity and what people know and their experience and their talent, the people that work within that business, that, that is worth something. You know, Elmwood is a consultancy that doesn't make widgets, we don't, we don't make tins, we come up with ideas. We think, and uh, there is there is a it's it is it is very hard to put a, a price on that. But um, I, I suppose the more we grew up at Elmwood, the more we learn how to how to value that. So very, every now and again, somebody will come to us and say, "We want to buy you, or do you want to merge?" And we sometimes say we're not interested, and sometimes we say, "Well, let's have a conversation." And that's when it comes up, and that's when we start to thinking about, you know, well, what's what are our assets? What's our turnover? What's our income? Um, what are the multiples of that? How can we multiply that? Because we, we own very little. We own computers, and we own some desks. And we own a, we own a building. Um, the rest of our buildings we lease. Um, you know, we, are, we, we own some pencils and things like that, but the rest of it is here. And you know, how do you how do you value that? So you multiply the your income, your revenue, and you make some very interesting equations. That I don't profess to understand because I'm not a finance director, but I do know that we 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 would we value our business at a premium and in in quite high multiples to account for the fact that we are. You know, a bunch of you know reasonably clever, creative, um, sharp individuals that is worth something. So that's how you do it. I would imagine that the work that you do with clients, they return the rights and the work. So once the, the clients pay, then all the rights return. To no, them. they don't. We're very keen on that. They don't do that. We uh, we own the intellectual copyright and everything that you do. The cl our clients are, are by the by the right to use that. So you grant the license to sort of. It's, it's not. We don't talk in those terms, but they 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 sort of. When they pay our fees, they say right. Then you we say right. Then you have the right to use that yeah. in perpetuity, um, as long as you know, as long as you um, don't change it or you know we agreed with you what how you're going to use it. And sometimes it gets quite difficult to deal with clients who actually say, no, we want to own the whole thing. And we said, well, we're not selling it. Because that idea came from our head. And that we're not going to sell you that. And photographers do that. And artists and musicians do that. Yes, of course. Um, and we do that as well. And I think in doing that, it, some people might think, oh, that's very conceited. But actually, it just means that we value what we do. You know, we value our people. We spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money in developing our own people and training them, working with them, mentoring, coaching them, um, making sure that they're well motivated and ha really happy, you know, working at Elmwood. 
um, so that they can deliver fantastic service for clients, and that's what they're paying for. But we're not going to give that away. So, going back to you, David, about how you, you value these intellectual property rights that you have, because um, they are intangible, it's quite difficult to put a future value on them, but you have had companies that you've sold. Oh, yes. So, A, how do you value it, and, and there some, must be some element of vagueness and risk involved in those kind of valuations. Well, you know, I suppose, it, in a sense, it's, it's, it becomes easier when you have an industry where you have norms. Um, and video game companies sell at multiples of their revenue. Um, developing companies are, are, more, are more difficult to value. Uh, and there are quite a lot of those, particularly in the Northwest, particularly. Um, um, that's often down to a kind of auction between, between usually several different companies trying to buy. Um, of course, goodwill is the difference between the value of the computers and desks and pencils, which is zero, by the way, and, um, and, and the value of the company as a, as a collective, ongoing enterprise. And that, that goodwill is, you know, has, has dogged accountants for, for years. And it's a problem with M&A because you have to write it off. Yeah. You have to account for it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, because, it, because it is intangible, it's exactly that problem. Um, but for companies with front-end revenue, it's not such an issue because they're usually measured on some kind of uh, analysis of their profit and loss and or their revenue, depending on which sector they're in. And um, but for the, for the developers, it's, it is more complicated because their revenue is often very small, as you know. And unless they have retained a huge amount of their, of their own rights, which, which increasingly good developers will do, you know, the, the, the developers yeah. that you know about from from the sort of 1990s become kind of companies in their own right as opposed to just work for hire um, to have retained a lot of their own rights and, and rights to, to some of their ongoing selling products. But if you have a, a we'll move on from this shortly, if you have a license for a certain franchise and then when you're selling to the consumer, to the public, yeah. if the public's perception changes of that franchise. So for example, we have a Jay Goody situation, yes. which is quite current. And yes. If I own that franchise, I'm, I'm yeah. not as happy as I was two weeks ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you worry with that risk? Or can you ensure that risk? Well, you can't do. That, that's, that's part of the risk you can take as a publisher, I suppose. Uh, and and I, I've always kind of took the view, and it's very difficult to persuade bankers of this, by the way, yeah. that you can't predict what your what your uh, risk is on any individual part of your portfolio. You need a wide ranging portfolio which has a, you know, a variety of different sectors, a variety of different risks. You're appealing to this demographic. And, and also, there are, you know, that, that in three years' time, these things expire, but there'll be others that will replace them. Um, it's always been a difficult argument for finance people. Yes. Uh, Can I just pick up on that? Because, you know, I, I talked about earlier about having brands having two sides, an emotional side and a practical side. And the practical side is absolute consistency. Jay Goody was not consistent. So therefore, her stock value has gone down because she's behaved abominably. Um, and, you know, her reputation has suffered as a result. Same way, Coca-Cola, you know, if you look on their balance sheet, on their annual report, you'll find a little spot down there called reputation. And that they have valued the reputa their reputation. So Coca-Cola do go to enormous lengths to protect the quality of the drink, the bottles, the distribution, the fizz, the taste, the secret recipe that they have to make that drink. And that that's all all of those things combine to um, to create a value, a pound shillings and pence value on that reputation. If they 
suddenly decided, I think was it Desiani or some kind of weird in the water, there was that, and they were, they were pretending, I don't know how they did this, and I think the heads rolled, and I'm, I think, well, I'm pretty sure they did, they rolled. It was basically bottled water, so they were fooling the public, so that dented Coca-Cola's reputation for really good quality, and it is about happiness, and we're going to, you know, we're trustworthy, and we are the biggest soft drink manufacturer in the world, and we didn't get there by, by um, trying to fool people. So their stock value went down, um, just because they acted inconsistently, and that, that to me is sort of the way that we think about it, and we think about brand positionings. You have to get it right all the time, and you have to behave consistently. It's not just about what the logo looks like or what colours you use, it's how you behave as well. And, and, and David, as a, as a, if you're a small company or a small developer or a small publisher, and you are running off, or your value is your intellectual property rights and what you own, if a bigger company comes along and infringes those rights, how does how's, how's litigation work? Is it kind of expensive? It's, is that the best you take? No, litigation. I, I've always thought litigation is, is, is an indication of all normal sense for every death. Um, I've never been involved in litigation, whether we've won or lost, really in the end ever paid off. It never comes in, but the management time and focus is put into the legal proceedings and the, the kind of distraction that the litigation causes for companies. But, having said all that, you know, copyright of intellectual property, the ownership of property, the ability to sell it, is, <coughs> is, is underlies everything uh, that, is, that, is, that is the way in which we, we, we sell and use our creativity. So it, there must be a legal bottom to all this. Uh, there is, and you know, the, the legal framework in Europe is gradually being harmonized. When we started, it wasn't. You know, French laws on copyright are completely different than the German ones, completely different than the UK ones. And outside the UK, it was, it was a lottery as to what, what we even did or what we even said. And we had initially uh, um, problems in distribution contracts that couldn't be broken in copyright, which was which was claimed by other um, uh, authors. But the last major problem we had was with a, a game we did based on a film called Waterworld. A terrible film. Anyway, part of the thing about this film, it had a trimer on it, and the trimer on sailed around and did things and whatever. And uh, we got sued by a French guy who claimed to invented the trimer on. And I said, well, hang on, this is a boat, you know, sailing around. And the, and the screen on this, on this, on this Game Boy was about this big, it was black and white. So the, the trimaran was sort of pixel in the top left-hand corner. But sure enough, this guy, and because he was French, and because in France the copyright laws were different, we only had to settle on the idea that we'd infringed this image of a trimaran that was being used in a, in a graphical sense. Um, but, but actually, the EC is now harmonizing most of those uh, differences that exist uh, between, between copyright laws, so that there will be some framework which, which authors and creative artists can rely on. So in fact, as soon as you publish something, it becomes copyright in any event. Yes. What you do to what you do to stop other people using it is different. You mentioned you were just earlier about. I mean, I asked about insurance, but as companies that are, again built on the intangible, which both of your companies are, securing finance, have you ever had to do that to grow as a business? Have you, do the bankers listen? I think they listen more to the to the they don't listen to the intangibles. That that's one of the problems, right? They listen to the, the bricks and water. Um, they listen to the PL. 
<coughs> so any company looking to expand um, with with uh, bank essentially debt type finance needs a good FDA. Needs a, someone who understands the, the, the financial nuts and bolts of the business that different. Because without the beginnings of the right presentation, the beginnings of the Q and A with the mm -hmm. with the bank people, I'm afraid you, you kind of tend to fade away very quickly. Okay. Um, okay let's, we'll move off now to that and to um, something else which is uh, intangible in, in lots of respects, and something that Ellen would be very hot on, um, and Jane leads on this, and that's staff. Because actually, that is part of, 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 of the intangible, isn't it? The quality of staff, the education they have, the skills they have, that's all very much part of the business. So, um, how did Elmwood nurture their staff? Um, well, until about um, well, five years ago, um, we're all a very sort of big, happy family in living in Leeds, and um, everybody got along. And if somebody said, I want to learn how to do something new, or they wanted to move across into a different um, type of work from say from a project manager into an account director or a project ma an art worker into a designer or whatever um, we would just encourage them you know and, that, and it was all very uh, loose but we actually did it quite a lot in terms of um, in helping people um, achieve what they wanted to achieve but then as we got bigger we decided we, need, we, we, we felt one we needed to have a bit more of a rigorous system in place that could be measured and all the rest of it um, and um, and so we decided that we would introduce um, a, a, quite a formal um, appraisal system that we call talk time um, and basically what happened was two or three times a year um, a person would think about what they've done in the last year or the last six months or whatever and, and say well that, that went really well, that didn't, I could have done better here and what, then what would you like to do in the future and then they would choose who they wanted to talk time with and it might, it might be me or it might be the creative director or it might be their friend who sits next to them um, and they would ha we'd have a discussion about them and then we would put down okay what do you want to do you know one might say I want to go on sabbatical and they'll say well how are we going to how are we going to manage that another one might say I want to um, have, go on a poetry writing course or I want to change my job completely and I don't want to be a creative person anymore I want to be I want to be a project manager or an account director and think well how we, then we put to get together a plan of how they would achieve that and that went that went really quite well and um, and then we grew and grew and uh, that was became unmanageable and we also decided we had sort of had, we were a bit more aspirational about things like that and about a year ago we decided that in order to remain to remain really really to be as creative as we possibly could be and as sharp as we possibly can be and as motivated and inspired and as happy as we possibly can be we needed to be much we needed to create more of a culture within the business of about learning learning new things new techniques develop ourselves personally and professionally um, become experts in certain fields like retail or FMCG or the future what's happening in in the future in you know back to consumers what are the big trends and we, we, we found and I got really interested in this as a MD is well because people were obviously very important to us um, and we decided as, as a board that we would we would develop we needed to develop a plan for how we we're going to develop le le a learning culture at Elmwood, and I was charged with that. So I went away and had a think about okay, what 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 what, what might it look like at Elmwood? And um, I decided that 
there were four different areas within Elmwood that were really going to create value for us and maintain maintain value and create more value for us in the future. One was creativity, you know, the creative brain, the mind, um, in, in how, how we can be inspired by things to do fantastic design work or write great company or come up with fantastic ideas and positionings. Um, the other thing was about personal development. So, for, you know, when people talk about fulfilling your potential, um, well, don't say things like that to talk about. But we do, we, I, we are very keen on people being really happy at work and fulfilled and enjoy coming to work and doing the job and getting satisfaction out of this. Because I'm a great believer that if you're happy, at doing something and you're 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 good at something that that in turn makes you even happier because being good at something makes you feel good uh, if you feel good you, you carry on being better at it and then it sort of goes around and around in circles um, so that was another area was sort of that sort of individual personal development the third area was was about the future so what is happening in consumer land um, and we need to, we need to be absolutely focused about trends uh, in consumer in consumerism in fashion um, uh, in food uh, in politics in you know this whole thing about sustainability that's a huge thing at the moment and it will continue to be so we need to be absolutely sure that we know as much as we possibly can about what's happening around the world um, so that we can talk with gravitas and. Um, from a point of um, knowledge to our clients about well, you know, that happened in Japan four years ago and now we think it might be suitable for you or that works there because of these factors it won't work for you um, because clients always want you to I think clients want to feel as though we know a bit more than they do about what's just around the corner um, and, the, and the fourth area was about sharing what we know uh, we've got four offices now, so it doesn't happen by osmosis like it used to do. So we have to make an effort to share what we know with each other. So I wrote this plan, and I thought, we need to do this. It got, we, we approved it at a board meeting about a year ago, and then since then I've been given that job to make sure that that plan is actually driven through the business, and that everybody has their own personal development plan, and everybody... Um, gets, you know, I've got a whole program what I've called it El uh, Elm World, where we get speakers in to come and talk to us. There might be a poet or a film producer, or um, I'm aiming for David Putnam at the moment, and uh, but he's booked up for two years in advance. But I'm out, I don't mind waiting. Um, so just, just, just to come and talk to us about their their lives and their business and what they what their what their um, motivates them. Just to, just to get people's head out of their computer or head out of their newspaper or head out of their spreadsheet and just get out and breathe some air for a bit. Because air will help you, it feeds your creative juices, I think. It's quite hard to describe, really. Um, so there are, and, and things like that don't happen in a business like ours of 66 people in the UK on their own anymore. So it has to happen and it has to have a framework. Um, we've got the Elmwood University as well, so... The more you learn and the, the more workshops you go on, or you, we have this thing called the Ticket to Ride, and um, we encourage everybody within the business to travel to other biz to other offices or to take days out and just do what they want to do for a day, and come back and tell tell us what they've done. So one of the writers last week decided to go to Blackpool with a camera and just to take some groovy black and white shots because she always wants to do that. And she came back today and she was going to share her experience with everybody. Um, back back at work now. It's hard to say. Well, 
just because you went to take those black and white shots in Blackpool and took a day, that means you're much more creative. You can't measure it like that. But if you do all these things all the time and keep pushing, it will rub off. And that, that's the theory anyway. So, so Elm would have put money behind that whole idea. Um, I'm doing that. I'm not the MD anymore. I'm, I'm sort of head of learning now. Um, because we found, we said it was so important to our business to make sure that we were sharp, to keep ahead of, ahead of the competition, to make sure we maintained our differentiation of creativeness and effectiveness. Um, that's, that's why we did it. Developing this wonderful workforce, we're very happy. Um, yeah, it sounds like utopia. We do have a lot of things. It sounds fabulous. Really. <laughs> um, but obviously, again, that's one of your assets is the business. Yeah. Uh, an intangible asset of the business is the creativity of your staff um, and educating them makes them better at their job. But the difference is with those kind of assets is they walk out the door at half five, six o'clock, five o'clock, mm -hmm. um, and you hope, hope that they come back the next morning. Yeah. So how do you encourage that kind of staff retention and keep them within the business to keep that value there? Well, do we have a share scheme? We do. We do have a, a, a thing called the Elmwood Trust. So everybody in the business who isn't an option holder or a shareholder in their own right has um, some shares put, put aside for them. We put quite a substantial amount of money, quite a large percentage of the of our of our um, of our um, earnings into a trust, so, and it's there, sitting there. And it's gaining in value every year as we, you know, we value the business every year. Then, therefore, the trust gets bigger. So, when we do decide to sell the business, or we decide to merge with another company, that value will be released, and everybody in the business will get some money, quite a substantial amount of money, for being an Elmwood person. So, that's one way we re we reward people for being, for staying with us. I have to say, though, Elmwood. Very, it's, we don't have a problem with retention particularly. In fact, sometimes we have a problem with people staying too long <laughs> and uh, thinking, you know, we want to encourage people to do some new things. I mean, I, I, I moved away from being the MD to doing this head of learning, so you know, I'm, I'm moving on, um, and that's, I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Um, another thing we do as well um, to, to encourage people to stay is we have a balanced business scorecard system as well, so that we measure um, the, the things that drive value in the business, so creative awards, we decided that's a, that's a tangible way of measuring whether we're creative or not, effectiveness awards, that's a tangible way of measuring. PR and reputation, Elm has always been a business that always punched above its weight, you know, <laughs> that people think, ooh, you know, and I did when I, when I first joined, I thought Elmwood Utopia, the old Buddhists sitting on top of her chanting on top of her. It wasn't really like that, although there were a few Buddhists and we did do some chanting. Um, but, you know, we did tell a very good story about that. It was based in reality. Um, so reputation is really important to us. So we spend a lot of time writing thought, what we call thought pieces, magazines, and doing speaking events and running conferences and doing this, that, and the other. So we've got our profile raised. And other things like financial profitability and efficiency ratios and stuff like that. So everybody in the business has to achieve certain targets based on balanced business scorecard. And, the, and half their um, bonus depends on whether we're not, as a business, together, we achieve those targets. And the other half of their bonus is whether they how far over and above the call of duty have they been an absolute star. And then and that is d decided by a group of people, like the creative director, me, peers, you know, that, that are predetermined to say, yeah, he's done really, really well, he's pulled up some trees this year, let's give him a big chunk of money 
Um, and so, so that's another way we do we do it. As long as the, as long as the money's in the bank, if you don't make money, you can't share it out. I know now why you don't have trouble retaining staff. David, can I just ask you about um, you've been uh, iPhone was was it an acquisition or was it a merger? I don't know. Uh, with Glue, how when they were buying it, what were they buying? Were they buying the intellectual property rights you had? Were they buying the skills you had? Were they buying the DNA of the company? What what do they want? Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were buying effectively a European, principally European footprint in terms of uh, network relationships, in other words, the business, yeah. the, the vertical line between you know, the content and the, and the consumer. That's the first thing. Um, so that, that's very, very obvious. Anyone yeah. pioneers a business, forms relationships, in this case with network operators. And, um, and secondly, they were buying a, a series of technology skills which uh, are kind of provisioning middleware skills in order to enable this to function. The next thing they're buying is revenue. And that was, a, again, in the end, probably, you could argue that that is the principal determinant of the, the parapassoon merged value of the two companies, whether it's three to one or, you know, or one to one or whatever it is, in general, it's a reflection of revenue. Otherwise, some shareholders or others will start to get um, and then the fourth thing is, yeah, the, the, the quality of the staff uh, and the degree to which those staff uh, will, will respond to the idea of, of, of merging. Um, um, and some people don't like mergers and others embrace them. Some people look at the, the larger opportunity uh, in, in terms of you know, a great idea and you know, I, I won't be ahead of all that. And there are, there are other people who kind of sink back and think, going to get squished by all this. Uh, and you have to make very generous provision for, for both of those sets of people to make uh, to make any kind of merger work. But when you were saying it was a human resource element of, 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 of a merger is in fact a critical one in terms of success, medium to long term. I mean, because you've acquired businesses as well, haven't you? You've actually bought them. What is not? Um, um, like what do you look for in a business when you, I mean, developers, for example, you've, you've bought development companies in the past. Yeah. What do you look for in a track record and quality of the development and the, the, the kind of enthusiasm that, that individuals have, particularly uh, the management, uh, for, for going forward? Electronic Arts has an obvious other example, mainly by development, for, for the value of franchises. Um, what can be called Maxis, for instance, ages ago, to get hold of a property called The Sims. Uh, there's no one left working in the EA anymore who worked for Maxis. Uh, but The Sims is a, is a, is a very successful product for EA. They, kind of, they took over the, the product and, and built it into one of the, the major legs of, of, of the interactive entertainment. Um, but we, we've tended in, in general to want to, 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 want, to, want to keep people. When you sit down with that blank piece of paper and right. somebody has to write down figures and, right. and offers and yeah. this is about, I'm coming to the end of valuing the intangible <coughs> here. So how do you sit down and start making those offers? Is it just, what do you work on? If you are working on staff, you're working on the intellectual property rights, you're working on all those things, how do you put a value on them? Um, well, you, you try to look at, very often, and I have to say, you know, I'm not banging out of the... Um, out of the, out of the 
answer here, but increasingly one gets involved with professional advisors. So normally, your, your bankers or your, whoever you've employed to, to take you along this path. And in fact, in the case of ICO, for instance, we were, we were looking for venture capital in order to bulk the company up to go public in the UK. That was our original intention. And the, the fact that we ended up in a merger was, a, was serendipity. Uh, along the road in doing this, we, we made enough noise and made enough attention in the US. I did a road show from sort of, you know, New York to Los Angeles. Nothing in between, by the way. At least <laughs> the and, um, and out of the woodwork came four or five people who said, oh, that, you know, that's very interesting. That would suit our, our strategy uh, in terms of propositioning, widening our proposition to, to Asia and Australia and, and and we began talking with two or three customers. And so the process, we have this kind of parallel process. So in that sense, you end up with an equilibrium of, of, of offer and value. Um, and, and, the, and the bankers kind of you know, look to get the maximum fee, so they'll want the, yeah. the, the largest value. But, but it's certainly true that the, the intellectual element of it must be huge. Because if, if the company was turning over the sort of revenue we were, and it was making cardboard boxes, its value would be a hundredth or you know, a tenth or whatever. Right. So, the interest, so the rest is attributable to, to the intangible value that your greater people and yeah, your intellectual property is, is, is built up inside of things. Uh, I'm going to have to close it there. Um, we've got to get Jane on a train back to Leeds. Um, thank you very much everybody for coming. Um, big thanks to Nesta who helped put these events together. Um, God bless Sids who put these things together and, and definitely for Phil and Kate who worked really hard to make these happen and get such a really high quality standard of speaker which they've done three times on the trot now. Um, so we need to have big thanks to them. Um, and finally, obviously, please give a very warm thanks for our two speakers today. Thank you. Mr. Thank you.